Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pathfinder podcast. This is your host, Demetrius, and this is the podcast where we explore the human condition and the paths that we choose in life. So I'm excited to be with you guys again today. I know there was a, I had a, a small bit of a, a bit of a small hiatus, a bit of a small break, but I'm, I'm getting back to the content for you guys. And um, today I'm going to be bringing you guys another uh, uh, awesome uh, guest interview. I'm speaking with author, writer, uh, podcast host. He is the host of the Current Affairs podcast and creator of the Democracy Policy uh, Project. I'm speaking with uh, Pete Davis. Uh, Pete, how are you doing today? I am doing great. I'm so glad to be here on the Pathfinder podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to come on. I, um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work and current affairs work. They want, they're probably one of my favorite uh, political uh, publications. Um, you guys do amazing work. And um, the reason I wanted to have you on today was to talk about um, the, um, the American philosophical tradition of pragmatism. Um, because I, I listened to your episode called Beyond Marx that you did um, uh, for Current Affairs. It's a two-part episode, and, and everyone should go check that out. I'll make sure to put links um, in, in the um, <clears throat> description of this podcast. Um, and I was really inspired because you talked about uh, a different leftist tradition that I feel like that, that there really doesn't seem to be a lot of conversation around. You know, most of the conversation is centered around Marxism, uh, anarchism and stuff like that. But you don't hear that much about pragmatism. Um, and so I really wanted to, to have you on to talk about, uh, you know, pragmatist philosophy and and, you know, its history and what it's all about, just just to not only learn about it myself, but also introduce uh, my audience to a different way of thinking about uh, uh, politics. So thank you so much for for, for being yeah. able to come on. Happy, happy to um, happy to spread the 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 word about uh, <laughs> the, the pragmatic tradition and the radical democratic tradition that's closely tied to it. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, first off, can you tell us a, a bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you do today? Yeah. So I am from uh, I'm, I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia. It's where I live now. It's my beloved hometown right uh, outside of D.C. And I've always been involved in uh, civics, uh, which, you know, the intersection of community and politics. And so I've done a ver- I'm a very project-oriented person, so I've done a variety of projects related to that. Uh, I went, you know, I worked uh, for a while on building a web platform for community engagement. I worked on a prison reform project for a while. Uh, My big work before law school was I helped with the minimum wage fight in the early 2010s to try to raise the minimum wage. Um, We were fighting, you know, we thought we were the radicals. We were fighting for 1075 (laughs) against the centrist Democrats that were fighting for nine or 1010. (laughs) And then out of nowhere, this amazing movement called the fight for campaign called the fight for 15 um, came and, uh, and showed, you know, an even more bolder thing. And I've been so inspired by that. Then I went to law school and, um, fought uh, for public interest law and getting more funding for civil legal aid. And uh, now after law school, I'm one year out now, and I'm very interested in projects that deepen democracy in America and deepen solidarity in America. 
And my big one right now, in addition to hosting the Current Affairs podcast, is what I call the Democracy Policy Network, which is trying to raise up uh, policy ideas that deepen democracy that uh, uh, movement leaders can work to pass in their states. So that's that's what I'm working on now. That's awesome. You also hosted the the Harvard Law uh, Forum as well. I found while I was at Harvard Law School, I found this um, kind of a lost organization that had an endowment to bring in speakers that had this whole amazing history. They had brought in Martin Luther King and Eleanor Roosevelt and Jimmy Carter and um, all these, you know, Fidel Castro to Harvard Law. Wow. And um, and uh, I I found it. I found out that it had some funding and no one was take was doing it. And I revived it and brought it, made it a great way to bring in a bunch of. Uh, uh, movement folks uh who are part of all these wonderful uh democratically spirited projects so we had um we had keith ellison come we had helen i brought two nuns as a as a catholic i was proud to get two nuns (laughs) helen perjan who's been fighting the death penalty and simone campbell who's been fighting for economic justice we brought um matt stoller talk about antitrust uh Jesse Eisinger to talk about corporate crime. Um, you had the yeah, Brunigs. we brought in we had the Brunigs come. Um, some people said, "Oh, you're bringing Twitter to Harvard Law School because I invited well. so many." We brought Tim <laughs> Faust um, to talk about Medicare for all, um, and so uh, it was wonderful. It was like this. Uh, I just was like, "Let's try to cram as many as we can in," and I got to meet all these wonderful uh, figures of this new uh, insurgent moment. That's dope. That's 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 incredible. And videos are all online because I had a real spirit of like, let's not have this just be for the fifty right students here. Let's let's make it a public thing. It's crazy that that money was just sitting there. That's that's <laughs> that's just so that's so bizarre to me. That's so bizarre to me. Um, well, well, one thing I have to say about that is that in every institution. There is, if you have a vision of what you want to do, you can always shake the trees for the uh, in the institution. You'll be surprised what you find. Oh, um, so uh, go, you know, if you're in a town, go see what grants the city has, community groups, you know, the state. If you're in a college, see if there's something you can take over and um, use towards. That is such a shame. Um, towards the, yeah. So that is such a shame. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, so for my uh, first question, uh, so so what is the American philosophy of, of pragmatism? How, how would you how would you describe it? Yeah, so it. OK, so it started at um, the turn of the century and the original. The famous three are this guy named Charles uh, Pierce, William James and John Dewey. Mm-hmm. And I like starting with William James because he starts pre-political and then John Dewey makes it political. Mm. So William James is one of the founders of psychology. Um, he's this very interesting per- person who kind of moved a lot when he was a child. And so he was able to see a bunch of different contexts. And many people think that influenced his tradition um, because he saw that um, there are just many ways to organize society. And so he came uh, he came up he when he developed helped develop pragmatism, he said, he started it as a psychological principle, which was that there is the way that we find out what we know, like it starts literally in like, what do we know as a human? The way we find out what we know is we test things in the real world. 
mm-hmm. and we see what works. So there's no truth, according to pragmatism, that's just kind of waiting out in the cosmos, separated from the experience of what happens in the world. Uh, so, f- for example, mm-hmm. the Platonists believed uh, is the opposite. They believe that there are like these ideal right. forms yeah. that exist out in the cosmos, and you yeah. can slowly discover them. The way the pragmatists say is they, they're really embodied in the world. They mm. say the way you find the truth is you act in the world and then you know the truth. And there's a a two-step, uh, you're from Texas, so a Texas two-step yeah. between uh, <laughs> uh, between uh, the, your experience in the world and then your processing in your mind of what you saw in the world. So, mm. um, and, and so this sounds very abstract, so let's make it a little bit more concrete. So like as a baby is developing what it knows about the world. It, you know, touches a stove, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it sees that the stove is hot. And then it processes a thought about touching the stove. Mm -hmm. And then it says, well, like, okay, now this is what hot means. This is what the stove is. I should now know that touching the stove is not a good idea. Uh, And then you slowly, then you make an adjustment and you have another model of the world, and then you go out in the world and try to realize the model, and then you find out what works and what doesn't work. You go back to your model in your head, you readjust it, you go back into the world. And so um, so Charles Pierce had this famous line, which he said, consider the practical effects of the objects of your conception. Hmm. Then your conception of those effects is the whole of your conception of the object, which sounds very abstract, but it's basically like, the truth is what works. Um, if something uh, if something works, it is closer to the truth than if it doesn't work. And in different contexts, different things work. So you'll have different truths for different contexts. And um, and so it's very practical. So this all sounds like this abstract philosophy. But then John Dewey brings it into politics, and he says like the institutional form that embodies this maxim, that embodies this abstract philosophy, is democracy. Hmm. Because democracy is constant experimentation. Democracy is not trying to take some ideal form that's hidden on a mountain somewhere and bring it down to the earth. Democracy is not trying to discern the true future or the true utopia and then make it happen. Democracy is a constant experiment in what works for the community that is enacting the democracy. Mm. And so what you might, some words you might hear around kind of pragmatic small d Democrats is, uh, you know, an experimentalist culture, a culture where we try new things and then if they work, we embed them further. And if they work, we make them bigger. And then if they don't work, we try something different. And democracy is the system that keeps the world open to those experiments. Mm. It, uh, it doesn't have sacred cows. It, uh, it, um, and so, a, so in the culture today, 100 years later, I have these kind of pragma- pragmatist heroes, Cornel West, famous yeah. radical Democrat, radical pragmatist, Roberto Unger, famous radical Democrat, radical pragmatist. Their whole spirit in which they come to society is they want to have the jazz of society they want to keep the experiment open in multiple ways let's try this let's see if that works let's see if this works better um we try it out oh it's great let's institutionalize it more oh this thing seems to not be working we need to open up space for another way to organize things Mm. the world and then here's some of their great phrases that really brings it to earth for today 
be skeptical of the people that are saying that some institutional form is natural or necessary. Yes, yes. There's all these people that say, well, the market must be organized this way because that's that's uh, how yes. it's always been organized. Or, yeah. or we've tried everything and this is the perfect one. Or it's human nature yes. that this is the way we interact. But the radical Democrats would say, no, it's not. It's just frozen. It's just an experiment that at some point worked and we entrenched it. Um, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it shouldn't. It should be closed off forever to further experimentation, and um, and so the radical democratic tradition is trying to, you know, knock off the halo of the natural and the necessary to open up for the experimentation of things again. And um, so, and it's always it's always the and, you know, the kind of humanistic spirit in this is everyone should have a, a voice in that experimentation. Everyone should participate in power. Everyone should participate in the great conversation the great laboratory that is kind of uh figuring out what our institutional home fits for uh, 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 us at this moment right now um and so uh so pragmatism is a philosophy that undergirds democracy um which is a philosophy of and a, a way of structuring a society so uh that can that we believe is the way to enhance freedom the best final thing on this you know um the libertarians say that freedom is liberty from government. Mm-hmm. And so, and they say freedom is liberty. And the best way to install liberty is, um, is capitalism and like a free market. Yeah. Um, and so, but we have a parallel equivalent of that. Our parallel equivalent on the left is freedom is actually participation in power. Yes. It's not just liberty from government. It's a voice in um in all the structures of power because it's not just us sitting alone and no power touches us at the libertarian dream it's we are that we will always be touched by power we are completely in a world surrounded we are living in a home of a thousand institutions and so we are not ever truly free from them the way we can become free within them is to participate in them and to open them up to our experimentation. And and that system, just how they said freedom is liberty and liberty is embedded through capitalism, ours is freedom is participation and participation is embedded in an institutional form through democracy. And um, and so you can see how uh, uh, pragmatism undergirds this because the libertarians would say the, um, the goal is that you can always exit. Um, you can always kind of exit uh, institutions. Nothing can touch you if you don't want it to touch you. Um, ours is the way that, you know, the freedom is through experimentation. It's through being able to make um, our ideas realized and pass them out. And so so it's kind of a, a key part of the radical democratic left tradition. So that's my opening spiel. I'm sure I was uh, said some gobbledygook in there, so please uh, sharpen it through questions, um, and I hope I can uh, enlighten further. No, no, or, that was, to the that extent was... that I know this, I'm not not a philosopher. I'm just a a reader. So. No, no, that was that was fantastic. I'm I'm convinced. Uh, <laughs> uh, if that if that was your pitch for for pragmatism, I'm convinced because that sounds that sounds brilliant. Um, that sounds something that that very much aligns closely with with the way that I with the way that I see the world and yeah I, I just love what you said about 
how it automatically combats that sort of uh that that it's I believe it's called the um the natural the naturalization thesis that many yeah. right wingers and conservatives have. Um, I, I first learned about it from this. I don't know if you heard of this podcast called Know Your Enemy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They are I love fan- Know Your Enemy. It's my favorite podcast. Yeah, they are fantastic. And, you know, they did a review of uh, I cannot remember the name of the book, but one of the the main uh, theses that is that is used to uphold, you know, a conservative, I guess you could say, social order is that uh, is that of, of naturalization. And you see it all over the place, wherever there's a sort of like right wing or conservative mentality, you know, be it uh, I see it in the church when it comes to certain theologies or you know, again, in economics, when it comes to the market, you know, uh, Mark Fisher, the great Marxist theorist, um, may he rest in love, you know, he talked about capitalist realism, there's no alternative and stuff like that. So I, I really like the fact that it's, 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 it's automatically, uh, it, it's, it's a philosophy, according, according to how you would describe it, that automatically is in opposition to that, because it's so dynamic and uh dynamic and flexible and fluid um ho- hopefully is that is that kind of what you're yeah so yeah denatural denaturalization is a huge tenet of radical pragmatism like you like the enemy of pragmatism is that there's some you know that everything is uh you know an institutional form is locked in and we can know the truth about that right. um like the ultimate truth about it and um yeah the big thing about pragmatism is pragmatism is the great philosophy of uncertainty mm-hmm. it says we cannot be certain about the institutional form that we cannot be certain about the institutional form that perfectly captures what you know living in human living as a human is that you know the coat you know jefferson has this line where he said the american revolution was throwing off a coat that didn't fit well um for the american people like in some ways to make that bigger it's like there is no coat that will always there's no ideal coat that will always fit well for existing as a human um we can only just you know get a um we can only constantly build that coat, you know, right. uh, constantly adjust it, constantly hem it, constantly hew it, because we are always changing, and um, we are always changing our understanding of what is good, and so it's always it's a constant dance between who we are and what our institutions are that we're living in. And so let me tell some stories about naturalization. So some famous naturalizations, like if you read, we need to have kids read how people talked about things in the past because it's. Sh- owes you the ridiculousness of some naturalizations. So just a few, like some very simple examples is just like read about how people talked about women in the past. Mm -hmm. Read about how psychologists wrote about how uh, escaping, uh, escaped slaves had a psychological disorder. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drapedomania. And um, that is such a, you know, the the evolutionary psychologists always want to naturalize, you know. Oh, you know, we have this institutional form called slavery. Let's try to say that it's the ultimate form and let's say it's part of human nature and let's try to police the boundaries of people who want to fight against it and resist it. A one that's like... um, and then the classic one is the market, you know, like that this single form of 
a property right, of the way we do contracts, of the way we structure a corporation, mm -hmm. of the way we structure finance, is the ultimate free market. You know, some leftists like to say, I don't believe in the free market. Um, I believe in this, but they accept the premises of the others saying that they know what a free market is. I like going deeper into the institutional forums and saying, what the heck is the free market? We don't, yeah. you are saying one institutional form that's developed in the last century is what a truly free market is, yes. but it's actually a specific institutional form that you're naturalizing and calling freedom. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, why is, why is the corporate, like, let me just unpack that a bit. Why is the corporate form, which is basically like you get a limited liability corporation, you come together and become a single entity, you get investors mm -hmm. who are separate from the managers who then hire the employees. Why is that any more of a true form of the market than a worker cooperative? Yeah. Or then a partnership between the state and people or a corporation that doesn't have limited liability or a corporation that doesn't maximize profits and has a different interest. All of those are possible firms. All right. of those could be called interacting in a free market. Right. Let me get one last thing and then I'll stop uh, blabbing on this. One of my fav favorite examples of, of uh, naturalization is um, that in the post-war period, there was a, a national economic idea called corporatism, which was actually not like that bad of an idea. It was basically saying we're going to have these. It, I, I don't think it's a good idea, but it, it's not like an evil idea. The idea was we're going to have a nation like America's going to be a, a, a nation, the government, and uh, there's going to be large corporations in it that hire everyone. Basically, like mm -hmm. IBM. General Motors, you know, like these giant, you know, giant 1950s corporations. They hire everyone and uh, the businesses are going to take responsibility for caring for everyone. Um, and the government's going to watch over that and the unions are going to make sh hold them accountable. And it's going to be very, very stable with these giant entities, giant unions, giant government, giant businesses. The businesses will make sure everyone gets insurance. They'll make sure everyone gets medical care. The uh, the government will watch over that. The labor unions will hold them accountable to that, it, and then ever just sounds everyone like will it's be bound to collapse. Like it just well, yes, it, yeah. it, it it did collapse because yeah. the businesses stopped caring for people. The labor unions died <laughs> out, and the government got taken over by the businesses. But for a while, people thought that was a really stable way to take care of people. And then the Catholic Church—I'm a Catholic, so I'll talk. Um, don't think I'm ripping on the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church issued a religious statement kind of endorsing corporatism saying it was the ultimate way to take care of workers saying businesses to be good catholics had to take care of their workers under corporatism you should honor that there are big governments and you should honor that there are labor unions oh, and they talked about it they talked about it like it was the ultimate human form of taking care of people uh, so and that was like that was a left-wing like encyclical it was about like taking care of your workers but there are a hundred ways to take care of workers. There's the workers have like localist unions. The workers have sectoral bargaining. The corporations are broken up through monopoly and we have uh, a social safety net We ha um, with uh, flexible benefits. There are a hundred ways to organize a country. And yet the Catholic Church got wanted to naturalize the way that happened to form in the 1950s yeah. and call it like holy. But it's like no institutional form is necessarily holy. It's just, you, you know, and it's it's just could be better than something else at the current time. 
Right. And so a pragmatist would never say, this is the ultimate thing. They would always say, this is good for now. <laughs> um, right. And like, we're fighting for it for now. And um, who knows what will be good 100 years from now. So, um, so it's weird. Uh, it, naturalism's weird. And so I, I believe in denaturalizing things. So um, that was a long way of saying all that. No, no, I, I definitely agree. And the reason that that stuck with me so much and, and, and uh, that it that it just came front and center to my mind when you said it is because I just watched uh, one of Sam Cedar of, of the of the majority report. You know, he debates libertarians all the time and he was debating a libertarian. And eventually the argument got to where the libertarian was saying, like, markets are natural. And... <laughs> And Cedar was just like, there's no, you know, historical or anthropological evidence to back that up. You know, and he cited uh, some of the like a great anarchist uh, uh, writer, David Graeber, in his book on debt, the 5000 yeah. year history of debt. And he's just like, you know, there's no history for that. You know, there, there's no real evidence of that. And, and so you just see that so often like that is a common, consistent, you know, just right wing argument over and over again. So I, I just, I just love that you addressed that. That was just, that was great. <laughs> um, uh, so for my next question, and you kind of answered this a, a, a little bit when you were uh, opening up on, on pragmatism, but I want to ask like, like how exactly do, cause I know prag pragmatists have a specific way of thinking about the nature of human reasoning. And yeah. so, Correct me if I'm wrong, but is it that pra the pragmatist view of human reasoning is that reason is a tool that exists specifically to solve sp specifically to solve problems in the world that we encounter as creatures of the world? Is that is that a way a good way yeah. of summarizing it in a way? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, a pragmatic, you know, I, I'm not a pragmatic philosopher, so if you want to get really clear, bring one on and I can recommend a few. But, um, okay. but, um, but what they do, yeah, the goal, the, the end, it kind of flips thing, it flips philosophy on its head. It was actually like super radical at the time and people thought like you're ruining philosophy. Wow. Those darn Americans were here in Europe kind of thinking um, – we're here in Europe thinking very rigorously about the ultimate truth and the Americans are just so practical about how to, you know, all they're thinking about is how do we build a well for the town? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, but what, what it does is it flips things on its head and it says like the, the goal in life, what we do is we try to solve problems in the real world. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why you actually get this bastardized version of what pragmatist means. Like currently I think, I think some people, if they heard this and had not heard about capital P pragmatism, they'd be like, oh, P Pete's a centrist here, you know, because right. all centrists like to say I'm being pragmatic. But when they say I'm being pragmatic, it's actually this like uh, watered down version of the term, which is I'm being like ultimately pragmatic, capital P pragmatic, like ultimately pragmatic is orienting your life towards untying knots in the real world. Like how do we make things work in the real world? And the goal of reason is not to like divine ultimate truths that we can be certain about and find our blueprints. It's to do uh, smaller truths 
that can help untie knots in the world and get things done in the world. So, you know, whereas a non let's let's embody that in like a, a true fight. Like, um, is Medicare for all good? Right. Like a pragmatist would say Medicare for all is an institutional form that achieves specific ends that we are trying to achieve right now in the century in this country. Okay. So, um, and it, it, it results in specific things, you know, like, um, uh, maybe in 300 years we won't need this, but it's what we need now. And so let me reason on what problems that will solve, you know, it yeah. will provide everyone coverage. It will provide a national infrastructure that will lessen fear. It will result in less health, health, um, health bankruptcies and health insurance deaths. It will result in, um, I'm, I'm making a case for Medicare for all as a little mini play inside of this, but yeah. it will result in costs down. Um, and let's try it and then let's make a job. And we're safe to try it because other people have tried it and we've seen how their experiments have turned out, which is well. Um, and so let's do it. Whereas a like an idealist would reason from like, what is the ultimate truth about what health insurance should be? Um, what does it mean for a human to be cared for or something? You know, it's like a, it's yeah. it's coming from the abstract on down. Pragmatists come from the real real world on up. So, so, um, so it's a yeah, very it's, materialist sort of a sort of analysis in a way. I know the Marxists always say materialism, materialism, but it it is kind of like a. a pretty materialist from 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 what i'm hearing you hearing you I, say i actually would i i would quibble with that um okay i'd parse that which is that so my great you know the great one of the great writers on materialism versus kind of the other stuff is martin luther king mm -hmm. and he says um you know when he says what's a non-materialist thing well there's spiritual goods okay, you know yeah. that yeah. are not about money and food and stuff um, that's like literally on the, like in the earth or whatever, you know, like right. the carbon or whatever. Um, but he had a spiritual good, which was like, are you part of a community? Are you culturally enriched? Are you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, are you closer to God? Are you feeling holier? Are you feeling wiser? You know, all the spiritual goods. Um, I would not say that the pragmatists are against considering spiritual goods while analyzing if something works. So they would capture both spiritual goods and material goods in the it's like an er philosophy. It's like it's more deeper and abstract. It's a total, you know, uh, ground level ultimate way of relating to the world. So it could capture Marxism and it could capture other things within it. And so it's Marxism would say, don't think about the spiritual goods that much. Think about the materialist goods. Pragmat, uh, you know, Martin Luther King would say, think about the material goods and think about the spiritual goods. Bread, you know, bread and not bread alone. Right. And pragmatist would say, as you're thinking about whatever goods you find worthwhile, as you come up with reforms or you come up with ways of being in the world, practices, institutions, laws, reforms, um, Think about if it's working for those goods, you know, don't think about, am I fulfilling an ultimate blueprint that's on Mount Sinai somewhere, you know, uh, in the mm. sky somewhere. Think about if it's working for those goods and you can fight over what goods are good, but you can, you can, you can fight over it in terms of it results in X happening. And so like it would be, it would still be pragmatic. 
just to say, you know, Medicare for all would, to use this example, Medicare for all would result in families being closer. It would result in, um, you know, people having more time to go to church, you know, if you value yeah. those too, you know, so. Yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's great that you speak on that. And I was curious, like, as to how, how does how does your how does your faith as a Christian kind of like like connect to your your you know your pragmatist principles? Because like it there 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 really does seem to be a lot of resonance. Because because from what I'm hearing, this is a very the word I would use. This is a very incarnational philosophy. Um, you know, it's not just like you know, it's it's not just like abstract like. Um, above our heads type of stuff like this is real embodied uh in in the world um a, a very embodied way of, of of thinking and living in in the world so it's the word the word i will use is like incarnational i, I don't know if you use yeah. the same sort of, no, sort of word no i love it there's this uh I, I, that totally resonates you know our c.s lewis has this quote i like um i'm uh our imitation of God in this life must be an imitation of God incarnate. Our model is Jesus, not only of Calvary, but of the workshop, the roads, yes. the crowds, the clamorous demands and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions. Um, and, um, and I love that because it's like, this is, you know, the, the Christian project is not, you know, there's just a mystical God, uh, the Christian Roger, God became incarnate, you know, and, um, and he inter interacted with the world and, uh, and he faced all the realities of the world. He was pressured by all the institutions of the world. And so, mm -hmm. uh, so that's one, yeah, one aspect of where Christianity fits into this. I also, there is one, you know, when you get down to it, um, so pragmatism and radical democracy are philosophies and ideologies of uncertainty. Um, and it's about uncertainty about everything. You know, we cannot find the ultimate form, form in institutional form in which we can exist. So we have to keep a constant conversation open. But there still is this one element at the core of it to me that cannot be uncertain. It has to be a sort of axiomatic faith which is that there is a certain human uh there's a certain human spark at the center of it that we have to respect mm -hmm. that we have to respect that the people that do the experiments are you know our brothers and sisters that are people whose agencies we have to grow that are people whose dignities we have to respect yes. yeah. and that's something that's not really open to experimentation <laughs> in my idea. You know, like, like mm -hmm. I don't want to experiment on what pe people are more worthwhile than other people. I don't want to yeah. experiment on if human agency matters. And I don't want to experiment on if um, there are people that are inside or outside the human community. So the axiom in which I, that I have certainty in or need to act with a faith in a certainty in um, to allow for all this kind of radical experimentation and all the other things is that kind of uh, democratic uh, uh, belief in the like in the in this in the dignity agency and genius of ordinary people yeah. and um, that's the certainty that makes all the other uncertainty work and so like and in pragmatism the deeper philosophy than just democracy you know 
it's saying all these things about our uncertainty about truth and our experimentation in the world, but in the end, you are a mind that's doing it. And you're a person that's doing it. And we have to respect that. And what I love about Christianity is Christianity it mixes these two as well, uh, which is um, which is a deep um, a deep respect and like sacredness to each individual as children of God, right. um, as the face of Jesus is in the stranger, you know, and the like. But a complete skepticism of all the structures of power that are already there. Yeah. So, um, so uh, that's what the democratic tradition is doing. That's why I join you know, Cornell West in saying I'm part, I want to be part, I want to advance the radical Christian democratic tradition. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he adds, you know, he adds Marxist pragmatist black tradition too. And if I may, I'm a fan of those traditions as well. So, um, but you know, uh, the ones I, I can lay claim to equally as well as the, the, the radical pragmatic Christian American tradition. So, yeah. um, and, and to say it poetically, I tried to say it um, like kind of get at what are the key elements of the philosophy. The poetic elements is this is a country of people that um, that took, you know, that tried everything out and um, and mm -hmm. spread good ideas and decided to not have too many tried to avoid having too many abstract wars and got really concrete. And, you know, there's a lot to hate about um, uh, many powerful uh, uh, history factors of America. But if you tell the story of America in terms of these bottom-up, uh, experimental, radical, uh, people-powered experimentalists, it's a pretty exciting uh, history to be a part of. The John Browns, the Frederick Douglasses, and yeah, Benjamin Lays, yes, and yes. Dorothy Days, and Jane Addamses, and uh, Fannie Lou Hamers. Um, that's an America that is uh, that has lived up to this radical democratic tradition. Yes, yeah, and and I love what you said there about like that. You know, for you as a Christian, that foundational ethic of of, of understanding that people are image bearers of God so they have this in, uh, inherent dignity and worth and that and that's your your jumping off point you know uh, I think the great um the great priest uh, Henry Nouwen he would say you know we're all uh, uh, the beloved you know the beloved sons and daughters of God and so um, that does really connect very easily to like d democracy and having an empowered uh, citizenry that should be respected and you know um, revered in uh, their sacred nature, uh, um, uh, respected as well. So I, I I love that. That's that's great. Um, uh, Amen. <laughs> uh, so so the next thing I was going to ask is um, how do how do the contemporary like pragmatist thinkers like of course you know Cor Cornell West, Eddie uh, uh, Glaw Jr., Richard Rorty. Uh, how do they differ from those like original thinkers, those original philosophers? Did they, are there, do they have a different way of, of, of thinking about pragmatism? Did they innovate some ideas? Like were the things they disagreed with? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, anyone, they're part of the same tradition. Um, uh, you know, one simple thing is just like the three founders of pragmatism were three kind of academic, powerful white dudes, and they had a lot of blind spots, as yeah. all even <laughs> yeah. inspiring philosophers uh, 
do and they had that you know John Dewey got some things wrong about World War One and and the like and you know they're still stuck in their time and um, and you know people are updating it for our time um, there are that's just kind of on the embodied history of these things you know applying it you know Elizabeth Anderson and uh, applying it to and Danielle Allen applying it to more um, you know feminist stories you know people Cornel West and others applying it to the racial justice stories um, that's just on you know expanding it out to make sure it's not just one perspective the kind of deepening of the pragmatic project Unger Roberto Unger's like a, the I, I think he's like done it and has if you read all his stuff it's like the definitive deepening of pragmatism what is pragmatism taken to the hilt um, right. and so what he says is he you know, uh, he he takes all the learnings of the recent, you know, all the shaking off of further, um, of, uh, you know, further heresies of the 70s postmodernists and kind of uses that. So let me let me back up a bit. So you have these kind of pseudo postmodern pragmatists by postmodern. It's like skepticism of these grand narratives at the right. turn of the century. But then kind of the grand narratives strike back. You know, we have this Cold War liberalism mid-century. People are kind of writing, you know, they get more mechanical and less, uh, you know, in the, in the 50s, the philosophers writing. And then in the 70s, 60s and 70s and 80s, we start having like another version, like a revived version of all this postmodernism and total skepticism of these grand narratives, decentering of things, kind of opening up sacred cows again and saying like, wait, let's look at this again. All the critical theories, critical gender theory, critical race theory, uh, critical yeah. legal studies, all that stuff. And then like after, you know, 30 years of that happening, you know, we, you know, Unger comes, al comes along and says, okay, we now know even more so let me just digest all this and come out with a comprehensive deepening of this and so what he says is basically the experimental this is what he says is the experimental tradition he says um he he outlines you know there is this naturalization that happens over all of our institutions and um and we need to denaturalize all of our institutions and open them up to experimentation and he says, our job as humans is to exert our agency by experimenting and turning the tables on our institutions by experimenting with them. So, you know, instead of our institutions just forming us, we can form them by using our imagination to turn the tables and not just be formed by them, we can form them. Right. And he says, and he actually goes deep into the mind in his philosophy and he says, there's actually two parts of our mind. There's a mind that can be coded by the institutions that sets us into routines. You know, the institutions tell us, go to your job nine to five. So you start learning how to be a computer and do your job nine to five. You know, the institutions say, this is how you enact being male. So you start being coded in like the theater production that is enacting masculinity. You know, this is how the institutions <laughs> tell you 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 should interact with other people. You start coding yeah. in this part of your brain. Let me Let me fulfill my role. Right. But then he says there's another part of our brain that's an anti-machine that says, I have a different idea for this institution. I have a reform. I have a way that it can be changed and experimented with. And then you fight back and you do a reform movement or you propose something different or you act in a different way or you prefigure some alternative. And he says, actually, the fight of democracy 
is the fight of having the supremacy of the anti-machine part of the mind supreme over the machine part of the mind and that you can actually build a structure that that keeps society open and grows the anti-machine part of the mind and that's what democracy is so you can have a structure that asks you what do you want you can have a structure that says change me you know you can have a structure that funds experimentation um and that will change the structure will change us and that is the democratic ideal to become democratic minds and have a democratic structure that is the perfect home to those minds so that's all sounds very abstract philosophy but you can think about it concretely like a culture that invites you to, to you know part of your time you might be enacting a script but part of your time invites you to do something new a economic structure that invites you to create new firms uh, or raise your voice at work, a structure of a firm that says empowers its workers and not just codes its workers, it, it, um, you know, a structure of democracy that says let's change, let's try new things. Those all, that dance between the person and the structure will, lead, you know, ascend towards a democratic form. And um, deeper articulation of what democracy is. John Dewey could have had this hunky-dory definition, which was like, democracy is we need to be participating in a lot of civic groups, we need to have a lot of deliberative forums, we need to have a vibrant, um, you know, in all parts of our schools should teach civic education and like be experimentalists in school, and then Unger kind of deepens it to its full hilt, and uh, so you'll see that in his writing, and so um, so uh, that's, uh, that's, that's him kind of deepening pragmatism, so... And then Cornell West has a lot of beautiful poetry about this, like, you know, the jazz and the blues are, are, uh, um, and he has a lot of rigorous writing about it too, but I've, I've only kind of heard him speak in the beautiful poetry. Um, uh, you know, democracy is, is not architecture. It's not some blueprint that we have to build. It's like jazz. It's constant, um, mm -hmm. it's constant adjustments, constant experimentation. That's, that's, that is, that is wonderful. I, I just love that type of like, fluid fluidity and thinking that that is that is great and yeah I, um yeah I, I of course there is that sort of like you know with with those early thinkers the you know the the whole like dead white men like syndrome like of course other groups of people are going to be left out and stuff like that and that's and that's why I, I sort of love what um well I do love what Cornell West and Eddie S. Glaude Jr. do is they connect um pragmatism to the overall like black political tradition i think like eddie s glaude jr he has a book uh in shade of in shades of blue where he like reframe reframes black politics in terms of like uh, uh pragmatism and if i think um cornell west i think in democracy matters he has an essay on that like connecting it to people like tony morrison and stuff like that so yeah that that's 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 really dope and that, and it does reflect like pragmatism itself like it can it, it it's it the the thought itself can also expand and grow and ex, you know be experimental like you say so yeah cool. you know it's um it's a like look at you know they'll say it much more eloquently than me but like just look you know part of I love this reframing of the black tradition because you know the white the white gaze would be like this is a deviance, mm -hmm. uh, like their institutional forms are deviance from the true form, which is the like white created form, whereas 
the pragmatic view of it is these are not deviances from the true form. These are other experiments to, to true lived experiences that you would never know, white man. You know, and so yeah. um, and it's it's beautiful. Um, uh, and that's just, you know, it's beautiful. And look at all the amazing institutional forms that have, have come out of that, you know. Um, uh, things that have worked, things that have led people, like, led people to survive and thrive. Um, and, uh, and W.E.B. Du Bois, a pragmatist. So. Oh, wow. Oh, and, wow. and interlocutor with Dewey. So, uh, all part of the tradition. So, um, awesome. I, I have not read Eddie S. Claude Jr. I am, I, I'm gonna, I'm on, well, I'm talking to you. I'm about to buy in, which one should I read first? I would say democracy in black is just incredible. Um, it, it, it is, it's very accessible, very readable, but I mean, you know, you're, you're quite an intelligent person. So you'll, you'll be, you'll be able to get through the book, but that, that book is just fantastic. If you want to really understand like thoroughly black social and political life as it stands, I would argue as it stands right now, even though I think he wrote that book in 2017, or 18. Um, but if you want to understand black social and political life as it stands right now, you have to read that book. Um, Amazing. I mean, it's, it's thorough the way he, the way he even talks about racism as, as, and, and you can see his pragmatism in that it, it's very embodied, you know, the way, the way in which we learn about racism, about white supremacy is ingrained into the very environment that you live in so you so you know if you're african-american you know if you live in 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 uh you know a, a ghetto or something like that you know if you live somewhere like i i live uh in fifth ward here in houston texas and there's a um a, a old uh negro cemetery uh that still has the stones and the the um the the tombstones of slaves and stuff like that so you can learn about uh, these differences just just in the very geography of where you live, you know, where I live versus if I drove to a, uh, you know, a wealthier part of town that's mostly inhabited by, you know, uh, Caucasian people. And you see the differences in the quality of education and stuff like that. It, it's it's something that's that's um, that that gets to live in your bones. I, I forgot the the specific. Um, uh, uh, terminologies that he that he uses for it, but it, yeah, I mean, even the way that he breaks down racism and and a thing that was big for me with that book was the way that he differentiates between black politics, which is so important. Um, you know, being a black liberal, of course, is not the same thing as being a black radical, which is not the same thing as being a black conservative. On top of that, you have to factor in, you know, there are uh, you know, African-Americans, but then there are people of the diaspora who are in, who are from other places. They might be from the Caribbean. They may be from, you know, England or something Amen. like that. So you have to look at these differences. And I think a lot of times when it comes to black politics, we too many times, and, and I don't want to sound like ADOS here, uh, if you, if you know what that is, uh, um, yeah, yeah, no, uh, we we talk about it a lot at Current Affairs, so on the Slack we'll eventually have a, a podcast about it too. So yeah, tell me a bit about, tell me, what were you going to say? Yeah, uh, well, it, I mean, you know, there are just so, there are just differences in, in um, 
just just in the politics so that that book is really uh something i would i would definitely um uh recommend that everybody reads but um i just i just only have like uh maybe about like maybe like two more questions here and and you know yeah. I'll, I'll let you go and you know uh you know you hopefully you enjoy your day and everything like that but for for the for the last one what are um what are some like in what are some like intellectual like practices and habits that you have that help you to be the best thinker you can be uh for the day yeah i actually i have a one piece of advice i always tell people which is the best thing for developing my worldview was having a few uh strong thinkers that i totally and completely dived into um and I call it the read. I, I call it the read a second book principle, which is um, if you read zero books, proverbial books, um, you um, you just think everything is common sense. You don't kind of have a structural thought in how to think through the world. The world just is one thing after another. Yeah. But then some people read one book, and they're so taken by a bold thinker that they kind of if they stop there, they become a cult member of that one thinker because it was so exciting to have um, someone give you kind of the cheat code to the world that you want to go tell everyone about this. So, you know, like a lot of people, you know, if they just converted to a religion or if they just read, you know, Friedrich Hayek for the first time and become a libertarian right. or if they just read, you know, this, that or the other, you know, on the left, it's like reading Marxism for the first time. And then you if you stop there, you're just a member of like an intellectual cult. Yeah. What you wow. need to do is you need to do that again with some, this is not like the normal centrist thing saying read both sides. It could be two people on the left that are just slightly different, you know? Um, yeah. But what it does, and, and don't just read one of them, go really deep and really try to understand what is the X perspective on the world. By So, um, and then, do it for another thing and then that'll free your mind all you need is two because you'll never be captured by one because you can always see things from the other side so what i did is i got really into ralph nader um and his kind of anti-corporate way of viewing the world i got really into roberto Unger and his radical democratic mm -hmm. tradition in cornell west and, and then i got really into robert putnam who wrote bowling alone and his yeah. view of like community and when i see a, a thing in a in 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 thought, I kind of have these three worlds, like everything's about community, everything's about kind of radical institutional innovation, and everything's about like, corporate control and power. And they're all different and they disagree with each other. And so it sharpens my way of seeing things from a different perspective. And so I would recommend to anyone, pick two philosophers or big thinkers or big impactful people and become obsessed with them, but make sure it's at least two. And um, and that'll sharpen your mind and it'll get you excited about three and four and five and six and whatever. Um, and um, and uh, and sharpen what you believe um, and where you fit in all of it uh, while awesome. giving you a dash of uncertainty so that you don't become a cultist. Awesome. Uh, that's, uh, that's great yeah. advice. Yeah. And so uh, for my next one, uh, what are some books that you would, what are maybe like three, you know, two you know, three, four books that you would recommend um, to 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 on this topic and, and learning about pragmatism and stuff like that that if that if that you think are are helpful. Um, 
learning about pragmatism. So um, there is a tiny book by William James called Pragmatism, if you want to read the original one. Um, okay. um, so that's he's great. Um, and it's very short. And he's he's a clear writer. But it's like 1900s writing. But it's clear. Um, um, the uh, I'd read. Um, I'd get into Roberto Unger by reading um, uh, Left Alternative, which we'll show you about his politics. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then he has this book called The Self-Awakened Pragmatism Unbound, which is more about his philosophy, not necessarily his politics. But I like recommending The Left Alternative for his politics and The Self-Awakened for his kind of theory of pragmatism um, that's accessible. Um and he and actually he and Cordell West wrote a book called The Future of American Progressivism, which sounds very boring because progressivism is not a cool word to use anymore. But <laughs> um, but it's actually a cool primer on that. Um, and then uh, for intellectual history, that just kind of shows what's that was really orienting to what's going on in America right now. I recommend this book called Age of Fracture by Daniel T. Rogers. Um, which is really great at denaturalizing what's happening in America right now because it literally goes piece by piece and go like, what is the st- like what is the origins in the last fifty years of you know the way we talk about the market, the way we talk about gender, the way we talk about race, the way we talk about this, that, or the other, and he goes into the literal fights in the specific years that led to these different things and the literal figures that led to different things and it makes you stop seeing the world as just like these are the forms that they've always been and how we talk about things and mm-hmm. start seeing that everything's part of a history and um, and it's great because it's about the current one we're in now so it's not like me abstractly saying that it's you seeing you know oh we started talking about America this way in 1974 because this politician found it useful to talk about America that way or he t- goes into the history of how the economics textbook used to teach macro first and then micro and then they flipped it in the 80s so they taught micro first and then macro so all of us stopped thinking about the economics in terms of like government action macro and started thinking about it in terms of like don't touch what the small firm is doing micro and how that could fit into things so that's just one example but it just shows that hey the world is a series of political decisions that happen in history Um, and so Age of Fracture by Daniel T. Rogers so um, so I've been hearing that there's these wonderful people like Danielle Allen and Elizabeth Anderson that I need to brought in my um, Zach Awarewin who talked to me on the original Pragmatist podcast was really into that. So um, uh, those are those are great too. So awesome, um, awesome. Well, Pete, thank thank you so much for uh, being willing to come on uh, the podcast and talk about this philosophy because I, I definitely think it's a, it's it's exciting and innovative and. Just thank you so much for your time and um just uh just give everybody like your 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 social media, your your <laughs> website info. This you is can, the Pragmatics uh, Show. Yeah, you can follow me on Pete at Pete D. Davis. Um our major project I'm working on 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 realizing this tradition uh in embodied forms is the Democracy Policy Network. You can find out at democracypolicy.network. It's easy to remember. Um, and uh, you can find all my stuff at PeteDavis.org. So, um, and watch, listen to the Current Affairs podcast and keep listening to the Pathfinder podcast. Thank you, thank you. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank, uh, you, thank, thank, thank you, you so Demetrius. Much. Thank you so much. I, I am always, it's hardened to meet uh, fellow uh, 
fellow uh, kindred spirits in this cause, especially fellow Christian lefties and um, people who care about these traditions. So um, thank you so much for having me on. Of course. And uh, thank you to all the listeners. Um, you guys know where to find me, SoundCloud, uh, oh. iTunes, um, Facebook. Uh, please follow. Please like and uh, review. Um, and thank you guys so much. This has been another episode of the Pathfinder Podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius. You all take care until next time.